This is the Serial and Midnight Podcast. Hello and welcome to the Serial at Midnight Podcast. My name is Heath Holland. Hey, thank you so much for downloading this episode if you're listening to it in podcast form. Uh, if you are watching this on YouTube, thank you to you as well. I am so excited about this conversation because we're talking to Patrick Reed Johnson, a man who I have so much admiration for, not just as a filmmaker, but really as a fan. Uh, I was a sci-fi kid. I was a Star Wars kid. I was the guy that wore the Star Wars t-shirts in high school when it was so not cool to do that. And Patrick Reed Johnson is that guy, but he's fan one. We're going to find out what that means. Uh, 52577 is the gateway. It's the key to this conversation. I'm wearing the shirt if you're watching the video version. Uh, 52577 is a new movie that has just been released everywhere. You see your movie. Well, digital video on demand, the streaming platforms, you know, your Amazons. But I'm going to reference you to the MVD website because there you can get a bundle with the movie and this fine shirt that I'm wearing. That's a significant date, and if you're a Star Wars fan, you probably know. Uh, that's the original Star Wars day, you guys. You can take May the 4th and you can stuff it, because those who know, know that May the 25th, 1977, was the original Star Wars day. It's the day that is revered by older fans, because that is uh, it's a significant date. And it is a significant title for the film, which is an autobiographical look at Patrick Reed Johnson's life and his fandom and how he had a chance encounter in Hollywood, basically seeing much of Star Wars before anybody else, uh, and the doorways that that opened for him, both in his relationships and in his own personal fandom. There's a movie about it, and it's 525.77, 18 years in the making for this movie, which is absolutely fascinating to me. Is that a record? I can't think of any other movie that took... From, from principal photography starting in 2004, by the way, John Francis Daly after Freaks and Geeks, but still, you know, a, a young John Francis Daly. Here we are 18 years later. This movie is just being released. The story is fascinating, and we're going to talk all about it. Uh, let's give a quick rundown on Patrick Reed Johnson, because I know you guys, you're like me, right? You love the, the movies. You love genre movies. You love Star Wars, and you love science fiction, and you love the imagination, and that is... That is the playground of Mr. PRJ. So, uh, model building on V, the original V miniseries, Kenneth Johnson's miniseries, uh, working on the Amazing Stories series, uh, Spielberg's TV series in the 1980s, uh, Spaced Invaders. They directed Spaced Invaders, some, wrote and directed. So many of us love Spaced Invaders because of what it represents. It's a fun, uh, you know, kind of whimsical look at so much of the stuff that we care about, right? Uh, Baby's Day Out with John Hughes. Angus, you guys. Uh, should I talk about Dragonheart? I should, because actually Dragonheart is what kind of, we start the conversation with Dragonheart. Because I mentioned that it's getting a 4K from, uh, I believe it's Shell Factory. And uh, Patrick Reed Johnson basically created Dragonheart. He has the story credit for Dragonheart. And uh, the, 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 Oh, I love that movie. That's the bottom. I love Dragonheart. And uh, we don't talk a ton about it here, but that it does open the door for this conversation. So you know the man's work. We have so much respect for him. Uh, and this conversation is going to knock your socks off. So just buckle up and get ready. We're talking about 525.77 with a Mr. Patrick Reed Johnson. Take it away. It looks like uh, um, 
uh, Dragonheart is getting a 4K. That's uh, that's exciting. It is. Um, you know, it. I wish it was a better movie, but <laughs> um, it's. Uh, I'm happy. I mean, it's. Uh, it deserves at least that uh, good a treatment. You know, in terms of uh, the, although given the its age and the you know as much as you know uh, i'm i'm in love with my friends at ilm 4k is probably not going to help a lot with yeah. the you know cg work on the film um but the rest of the film ought to look really nice i mean it was well shot and, you know so we'll see i i mean i'm sure it'll be a nice thing with a lot of extras i haven't read the descriptions yet so i don't know i just heard about it do you know what did they announce what extras will be on or anything i don't know we can i can go look while we're talking here <laughs> um it's interesting you said that about you don't know if 4k will help it because there is such a 4k elitist kind of a movement that's happening right now where so there are some people that will only watch a 4k which i don't if, if you love movies i don't see how that really benefits you but um that's true like some movies are just they're going to be limited in how they were you know, I just reviewed the Polar Express, right? And that's, right. I don't think that was made for, four, like, that was 2004. I'm, so how, it's upscales, right. right? So Yeah. You're not yeah. going to get more out of a 4K version of, I mean, you'll get more than the VHS copy you had, but, you know, yeah. um, I, I believe that the old, the old Blu-ray was, it was just 2K or uh, 10, 1080, I think. Yeah. Okay. For the Dragonheart, they haven't said yet. They've just announced okay. that it's coming. So right. we don't know. We don't know we don't, yet. We don't know yet. That's cool. That's well, it. I love that movie though, so I'm excited about it. Um, I yeah, understand what you're saying, but yeah, I mean, there's a long history of uh, me and that, yeah. movie, you know, since it was, it was a little bit different when I was going to direct it. So I've I've heard some of the stories, and maybe this isn't the place to break into it, but uh, yeah, but <laughs> um, is that so? As a filmmaker, is that often the case when you you know, the starting line is so much different from the fin or the finish line looks so different from the starting line? Yeah, very, very, very often. And and that's not necessarily a bad thing. In, in certain cases, it is. It just depends on, you know, there's uh, there's a character in another project of mine that says, you know, we do not choose our destinations for no matter where we choose to go, we always seem to end up someplace else. And that is just as well. And uh, it's, it's true. Um, making films is sometimes you don't know the actual, you may know the, the story, of course, and the plot, which are different things, uh, but you might not actually know your premise, your actual reason for making the film, what you're really trying to impart, other than the mechanics of the story you're telling and the plot. You may not know fully, you may think you know. Some people start out not knowing and find it along the way and they're very comfortable with that. Others need to know their premise to make every decision that they make going forward and others, uh never find it you know um it, but it but it does things do change they inevitably change i mean the the movie that plays in the theater of your mind when you're writing it is very very rarely the movie that ends up on screen no matter how either talented or untalented or powerful or not powerful i mean i know many of the you look at jaws i mean what what they had intended when steven and and carl gottlieb and the gang and the actors went out to martha's vineyard was very very different than what they ended up with you know mm -hmm. and, and, and look how it, it yeah. we love it now we love it the, the 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 limitations make it so much better right because we don't get to see as much of the shark as has as had been intended right absolutely right and that and 
you know, the fun thing about that was that, you know, Stephen sort of parodied that knowing that he was going to be able to deliver amazing dinosaurs in Jurassic Park. Instead, he keeps them, keeps you wanting them for, I think, at least an hour, maybe uh, or maybe 90 minutes before we see a dinosaur. I don't know. It's a long time before we see a dinosaur in that movie. And and part of it is, you know, obviously building up our, our interest in it. But the other part is is basically playing a sort of psychological trick on the audience with them saying, you know what, they're probably not very good. That's the problem there. He's lowering your expectations through the characters going, you know, at this place is a bust. This thing's boring. This there's not even any what, <laughs> you know, yeah. it's really smart way of, of, of telling that story. So when you talk about the evolution of, of, you know, not maybe not even knowing where you're going, I'm, I'm curious with, with this film, you know, it, does that play into this? Cause this is, I mean, 18 years, right. This is an incredibly long road to bring this to the finish line. Yeah. And it sounds like you're still not done with it. It sounds like there's still maybe another cut that you want to mess around with. But like, how does, tell me a little bit about that, the, the journey that you're talking about. Did it evolve for you as you were going along? Absolutely. The, the original, I was looking, I was reading the original uh, first draft of, of the material, um, which is radically different. It's, it's structurally different. It, it has all kinds of moments and scenes and weird happenings, all of which were true, but just couldn't fit into one movie. Uh, it's, it's structurally totally different. I mean, it, it actually, the original story begins on a, you know, early morning, the sun rising over Lake Michigan in Waukegan, Illinois. And, and you see this old guy, me, getting out of my Ford Pinto, which is all rusted and beat, up, beat to hell. And, and, you know, putting on my little old man cardigan and, and, and starting to shuffle up Genesee street towards the theater. And all of a sudden around the opposite corner comes this like 10 year old kid in a, like a Obi-Wan outfit. Right. Uh, with his lightsaber and his lunch pail and whatever he's got, you know, he's, he's ready to go, you know, and he sees me and I see him and we both look at the box office where the guy's opening up the shade, you know, and getting ready to, with the cash drawer. And we just make this kind of, you know, little look and we both just start booking for the, you know, who's going to get there first, right? And get the first ticket. And then we collide and he's like, what are you doing? And what do you even care about Star Wars? You probably don't even know what it is and blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, sit down. <laughs> and then I tell him the story that's this film. And by the end, because he gets there first, I mean, he manages to get the ticket. So then he gives it to me. And it was just a, it was a very different structure. Um, yeah. And, and at the end, Bill, at the end, Todd, well, I don't want to tell, I, I can't give anything away, but there's a very different ending to how, what happens at the theater um, okay. that we almost shot. And then we decided against it. And I'll tell you about it another time after when we get into the special edition thing. Okay. Okay. But, but. It, but it did change in many ways. I think the biggest change was that I had to. All right. First of all, the reason it didn't get released all these years is not because no one wanted it. In fact, we we had lots of people offering to distribute it for over a decade. The problem was none of them were willing to pay in advance of enough money to give us enough money to a finish all of our post work, but also to pay for two hundred thousand dollars worth of, you know, 70s pop songs. Mm -hmm. Right. Which which they kept saying all these different distributors would say, you don't really need those songs, you know, put in sound alike. So just take out the songs and put in just crowd noise. And, you know, I said, no, you don't understand. This is my American graffiti. OK, you know, Gary and I agreed that this was going to be a music driven film. 
and I had all these connections, you know, with Alan Parsons and Supertramp at 10CC and, you know, to have, to have the real thing meant more to me than having it come out 10 years earlier. And finally, MVD stepped up after, after about 10 years of chasing us, Eric Wilkinson, the head of acquisitions over there, had seen it, I think, at Star Wars Celebration 4, when it was like a three and a half hour temp cut. Uh, that you know, Lucasfilm asked, said we could screen in the big the big room, and um, he he came up to me after that screening and said, "I, I want to put this film out. I want to distribute it." And I said, "Well, we're going to need about two three hundred thousand dollars. Do you have that?" And he goes, "Nah, we're that's way out of our." And once a year, it'd be like near Christmas time. Usually, he'd call and say, "So, I really want to put your movie out," and I'd say, "Do you have two hundred thousand dollars?" And finally, and by the way, that two hundred thousand dollars bought us about two million dollars worth of music that everybody from Ringo Starr to Alan Parsons to you know, Roger Hodgson to everybody, everybody who saw it liked it enough that they just, they made a favored nations across the board, incredibly low money deal for the songs. And um, it was amazing. I mean, just really amazing to get the, the kind of songs we have in the movie for the kind of price we had to pay. Well, another thing that's amazing is that you have Star Wars footage that George Lucas is like, yeah, go ahead. That's okay. We, we should talk a little bit about your, you've got your Lucasfilm hat on. Uh, you have a pretty good relationship with George Lucas, which is pretty amazing. Yeah. Yeah. It's wonderful. Um, and reason for that, I can still thank Stephen uh, uh, and Fred Roos and Gary Kurtz and John Knoll for the, this relationship. How it began, obviously, you've, you know, it began with, you know, that trip that happens in the movie, but it didn't come to fruition until um, when Spaced Invaders was still called Martians before Disney had bought it. And we had no distribution. We just finished it. And we were kind of taking it around town and showing it to people. And all of a sudden, uh, my manager at the time, Melinda Jason, did this really crazy thing where she decided to trick all the heads of the major studios into thinking they were about to miss out on the biggest new hot indie film ever made. So she called the president of Warner Brothers and she said, Bruce, I... I'm just shocked. And she's he's like, what? What are you shocked about? And, and she goes, you're, you're not sending anyone to our screening this afternoon? And he's like, what screening? And she goes, it's okay. Don't worry about it. Jeffrey Katzenberg is going to send somebody from his place. He might come himself. Oh, anyway, uh, it's this thing called Martians. You wouldn't like it. And he's like, I'm sending somebody. Where is it? Right? So cut to, she now calls Jeffrey Katzenberg and says, Jeffrey, really? You're not going to send anybody to my screening today that Bruce is sending people to? And she did this to the heads of every major studio in town over the next 25 minutes. That's and great. by three o'clock that afternoon in Century City, there was a screening that every major studio had a development exec or acquisitions person at. And by the end of it, we had three offers to sell the movie. I had all of a sudden been signed by CAA with the five top agents under Michael Ovitz at the time, the Young Turks, they called them. And we're in a screening. I'm, I'm literally shuttled over to a screening at CAA. They've just come out of watching the movie. They say, we're signing you. Don't meet with any other agents. And I'm like, okay. And cut two, we're all congratulating each other and all excited. And I'm like, uh, something's happened. what's going on here? And all of a sudden, one of the agent's assistants come barely into the room. We have a problem. And they're like, what? And they're like, Stephen's office called. They're wondering, you know, why didn't you invite us to this big screening? And they're like, get the movie over to Stephen. And they were blaming CAA because Stephen was a client of CAA. And they thought, why wouldn't he, you know, what? And so they shipped our only work print over to Amblin. And that evening, Stephen, or not even that evening, I think it was that afternoon, Stephen and his son Max watched it in the Amblin, you know, main theater. 
And we got a call later in the day saying, Stephen loves this movie. He called Jeffrey Katzenberg and said, you have to buy this and put it out on Touchstone and put a little money in it, slap a new title on it and get it out there because it's really good. And it was made for like, you know, $1.75 million. You're going to make money on this. And we got a call from Disney saying, we're buying your movie. <laughs> and we cut to, and then you're meeting tomorrow with Kathy Kennedy and Frank Marshall and you're in the DGA and here's your, you know, Frank Marshall and... and <laughs> I, I mean, yeah, it, it, Frank signed my DGA card. It's like, wait, what? <laughs> wow. um, but so, but with George, what happened was, so like three days later, my new agent calls up and, and says, what are you doing for breakfast tomorrow? And I said, I don't have any plans. And he, he goes, yeah, well, actually you do. You're going to meet Fred Roos. And now Fred Roos produced basically all of, you know, Francis Coppola's films and discovered a couple of major actors like, you know, Harrison Ford and people like that. And, and Fred, Say, you know, says, you meet me at this breakfast place in the morning and I, I drive up to the top of Beverly Glen and I walk into this Italian restaurant. It's like the Godfather in there. I mean, it's like, you know, it's just exactly, I figure I'm going to get whacked, right? So, but I, they pay, take me back to his little private area in the restaurant and there's a table all set, but he's not there. They sit me down and all of a sudden, you know, I wait for like 10 minutes and then Fred walks in and he's, and Fred, he's one of the sweetest, coolest, funniest guys in the world, but you'd never know it. Like he's just stone face right he walks in he sits down and he starts they they come barreling in and put down his cappuccino things and pour and he's just sitting there stirring the sugar in his coffee staring across the table at me and i'm finally he takes a sip and i'm i'm just <laughs> losing it and he goes your movie dollar for dollar has more production value in it than any film i've ever seen since i've been in hollywood and you're going to tell me how you did it <laughs> wow and because we made a lot, I mean, it was John Knowles' first visual supervising job, you know, and he was working at ILM in the optical department and would go across the bridge at night with he and a couple other amazing camera and model people uh, into a little warehouse they rented. And they'd work all night while they're working on the abyss during the daytime. They're doing Space Invader or Martians effects at night. And they did, I think, 205 shots for about $205,000, which... When ILM found out, he screened the, the final effects reel from the movie from there, and they're like, two things. One, you're now a visual effects supervisor. <laughs> they just promoted him on the spot. Uh, no, three things. Two, you now have a contract with us that you can uh, not get out of for at least three years or whatever. And then, and the third thing is you must never do that again because no one must find out that you can do this kind of work for that budget. <laughs> so... Um, so, so what happens then anyway, so Fred, I tell him the whole story of how this movie's made and everything he goes, what are you doing tomorrow for breakfast? I said, oh, I can come back. He goes, no, 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 no. I got a friend I want you to meet. Uh, and, and he goes, I'll call your agent. I'll set it all up. So I'm driving home, car phone rings. I pick it up <clears throat> and I go, <laughs> so yeah. And, and my agent Jay says, um, you have breakfast tomorrow. I said, yeah, I heard I'm having some breakfast. And he goes, with George Lucas. <laughs> I'm like, what? And he goes, yeah, he wants to meet you. He just watched your movie. He loves it. <laughs> so, so the next morning I go to the Bel Air Hotel and I walk in. They take me to the table where George is sitting and he, you know, we hit it, hit it off. It's supposed to be like a 15 minute get together to talk about my possibly directing Radioland Murders, mm -hmm. which which is a script I had been sent the night before and I'd read it and, it, and, and, and George wouldn't mind my saying this, it, it needed work. And, and, and he knew it and I knew it and he wanted to hear my notes and I wanted to hear his. And, 
what was supposed to be a 15 minute thing turned into like, you know, almost two hours of just two nerds nerding out on the, you know, emerging technologies. And because I'd come up through visual effects and had started working for Douglas Trumbull and Richard Jurisic and other model shops and Greg Jean and all these people. So I, I kind of continued that path while writing scripts and getting projects going. So I had this like weird duality going on where I, when I didn't get a script job, I'd be back in the model shop, you know, building spaceships. And when I, when that was dry, maybe I'd option a script or sell another, you know, pitch or something, you know, and it just it kept going like this, you know, but meanwhile, so George and I, it was great. One of the things about the meeting with George was that he's just, he's just such a regular guy. I mean, he's just a, he, other than not wanting to be besieged by fans, he, you, he'd fit in at any convention. He would never yeah. do it. I mean, you might go, maybe you go around in a, in a stormtrooper helmet. Well, so people wouldn't know, but anyway, but, but also um, one of the things I, I, I said to myself before I went to the, the meeting was do not under any circumstances say the word star and the word wars in the same sentence. Never do that. And I didn't. I never brought up. I never even mentioned that I'd seen it, let alone been the first person. Fan one. Fan, fan one. one which, yeah. And, and the, we didn't even call it. it was, there was no there were no fanboys back then or fangirl. There wasn't there weren't even there were even really movie fans except for star trek you know yeah and even then and it wasn't exactly the most popular thing to be in those days <laughs> whereas now it might be the most popular but so he as i'm driving home my agent calls and goes you you really impressed george and i said why i didn't my notes were just kind of ah, meandering and he goes no you never said star wars once in the whole meeting and he couldn't believe it so Years go by. I don't do the film for a lot of reasons. Mostly Dragonheart was pulling my attention away and I had some other projects, you know, so, but every time I'd be at some Hollywood event, you know, G George, he's really, when you get him going and if he wants to talk to you, it's awesome. And he's got a lot to say, but mostly he's a pretty quiet guy. So we'd, I'd walk into like the Batman, uh, what was the, what was the one with Catwoman and the second one? Batman Returns? Yes. Batman Returns. And they had, Warner Brothers had built this amazing force perspective downtown Gotham City set on their giant soundstage. Mm -hmm. And they had a rap party uh, kind of after the casting crew screening or something at Warner Brothers. And so I go and I walk in with, with my, my fiance at the time and, and, and we're going down, they have a big dance floor set up in the middle of Gotham Square and it's really cool and crazy. And all of a sudden I see uh, George standing like at the corner, you know, by the curtains, you know, just sort of flannel shirt. Did you have a flannel shirt on? Huh? Did he have a flannel shirt on? Uh, you know, I I think he actually had a jacket. Like okay. a I like he dressed for it a little bit, which was okay. funny, but there might have been flannel under. I don't know. But he <laughs> but it's flannel lined. But um so I just walk up and go, hey George, he goes, Oh, hey Patrick, how's it going? You know, he's and and his daughter was out on the dance floor and my my fiance was like, I want to dance. I said, Well, go dance with Amanda. So they danced and George and I sat there for an hour just going about technology and the young indiana jones stuff he was working on and and so we just would you know he we we never worked on anything we didn't like start to collaborate or anything but we would run in each, into each other and just geek out now and then mm -hmm. and then when i was doing um this was really cool when i was doing baby's day out mixing it up at skywalker one day um i'm up at the big house having lunch in the sort of big dining room at the you know bottom of the stairs that leads up to george's office and and um there's George and he waves and, you know, and I, Hey, you know, and okay, blah, blah, blah. 
George goes upstairs and then John Knoll, who's sitting down to lunch with me, had come up from ILM for the day just to hang out a little bit. And so he, go, he goes, um, you know, stay right here, Patrick. I'll be right back. And he runs up the stairs. And about five minutes later, he comes bounding back down. He goes, come on. I said, where are we going? He goes, the archive. Now, the archive, I'm sure you know. It doesn't not, exist. Not everybody does. So let's let's talk about it. The, the archive is a building, a, you know, steel, you know, not steel. It's better than that. And it's also where the vaults were for the negatives and all that. But basically, the archive stores every original costume, prop, vehicle, miniature, and now digital file you know, <laughs> that has ever contributed to any of Lucasfilm's projects. And when you walk in, you, you, you open this door and the first thing you see is, at least in those days, it's gone now because it's, it's been moved to, all, all the materials I think have been moved to Los Angeles for his new museum. Um, so I, 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 the building's still up there at the ranch, but I don't think there's much left in it except maybe the Tucker cars or something, which will go down eventually. But so you walk in and there's 3PO and R2D2 standing there, the real guys, you know, <laughs> and, and the first thing right next to them was the Star Destroyer, the original three foot, you know, mm -hmm. and it's sitting on a, a stand about, I don't know, four or five feet off the ground. And I just went, John, and we were the only ones there. I mean, it's, it's, it's hermetically sealed and it's got security cameras, but there's nobody there. There's no like guards or anything. I said, don't ever tell anyone I did this. <laughs> so I go over to the model. I sit down, I turn around and I go. <laughs> so I can, so we go over and John's just like, oh my God. But I had to, I just had to do it. Cause that was the first thing I'd ever seen in Star Wars. Like most people, but actually when I saw it, it was just, there was no crawl. There was a title, it was called Star Wars, not A New Hope, just Star Wars, no crawl. And it, and it, we, you, there was a temporary title card, Star Wars, you know, like just something bad shot on cardboard, I think. And then it said, it said there was a storyboard of the title crawl. And then the next thing was just a big field of blue, just all blue, right? Nothing but blue. And all of a sudden, like a light stand comes in and a lens flare and the whole, and then no music, no sound. And then this model going, you know, coming overhead, like, like, okay, let's do it this way. <laughs> and we, so Herb Lightman and I just looked at each other like, holy shit, it, it keeps getting bigger <laughs> and longer. And what the, how big was this thing? And of course, it's literally that big. You know, it's, you can carry, you can sit in the front seat of your car, you know, <laughs> and, it so anyway so when i when after i met gary kurtz and, and gary and i met because we were both chasing the same science fiction book that we both wanted to develop into a movie and at that at that time we had a, about an equal chance of getting it done because i had a three-picture deal at universal he was the producer of star wars and the empire strikes back but he was you know off making a slipstream and you know he wasn't he wasn't you know because he hates hollywood or hated hollywood and he didn't want to deal with the studios as much as possible and so, and I was embedded in the studio at Universal, developing Dragonheart, nothing called Star Sailor, and wanting to do this Mike Resnick book called Santiago, which was a bounty hunter story that's really amazing, kind of a Hearts of Darkness meets, I guess, Boba Fett in a way. In fact, it would make a, it'd be an interesting story to adapt to the Star Wars universe, now that I think about it. Huh. Um, so anyway, there was somebody else involved with helping Gary find the rights who I was a mutual friend of a guy named Ed Elbert 
uh, producer of some renown who said, well, you, why don't you guys just do it together? Let me put you guys together in a room. And he made the fatal mistake of putting us together in the room. And, and we just went, you know, it was like ant feeler communication. And yeah. Gary and I became like fast friends immediately. And in fact, I gutted a whole section of our suite of offices at in the bungalow we had at Universal and moved Gary in and let him take over that section of the building. And 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 we became sort of development partners for a number of years, you know, um, while we were there. And it was fantastic, obviously. But he's also, I mean, he's a he was um, a, a deeply cool guy. Um, uh, hidden levels of humor. Very dry guy. If you meet him, if you had met him, and he, um, but but I somehow got to, got him to laugh quite a bit. And when he does, when he did laugh, it was it was truly infectious and fun to watch because he just didn't go around with a big smile on his face like I do all the time. He's like one of those guys who's just sort of, mm -hmm, mm -hmm, and then all of a sudden, you know, and you knew you got him. And he, anyway, he's. But when we made the film, uh, by the time we shot, you got to understand that we shot the entire Lake County, Illinois section of this movie was shot for $100,000 in 30 days. We were supposed to have more money, but the original investor kind of just vanished and didn't finish investing. And so we were stuck with, you know, a movie that had a 30 minute or 25 minute scene missing. Pat goes to Hollywood slug in the center of it. And we, we didn't have any of the Hollywood section. And it took us two years after cutting the movie together and running around and showing and trying to find people. Finally, um, a guy named uh, Peter Bowers, uh, who was friends with our sound designer at the time, um, said, I know a guy. And he brought Jim McLean uh, and his company, B Media, which was a, a Chicago-based VFX company. In, and they said, look, what do you need? I said, I need $750,000. And he said, okay, I'll write that check tomorrow. Can we do the effects? I said, yes, you can. And so we sort of had this arrangement where they contributed a bunch of effects, some of which are still in the movie. A lot of them got replaced over time because at the time they were what we could get, but then later the company uh, disbanded. And so we had, and we had to redo some effects, some of which we wanted to make better, some of which we wanted to make worse on purpose, which mm -hmm. will bring me to something else I want to tell you about. But okay. so at, at, by this point, we're at 2006 or 2007, I think. And, and we had started shooting in 2004. And all of a sudden, we uh, got picked up by the William Morris Agency, who, who uh, Cassie Nelways was head of their independent film division, one of the greatest, you know, indie film uh, placement guys on the planet, and, and brother of Carrie Elways, by the way, you know. And so Cassie, and, he said, he, he saw the film and says, Patrick, I love this movie so much. I'm going to get you whatever you need. We're going to get it in theaters. We're going to take it at Cannes Film Festival. It's going to be great. It's, it's beautiful. It's amazing. Blah, 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 blah. So he got them to start paying for stuff and we kept moving the ball down the road, but we never quite got all the money that we were supposed to get. And by, and we kept having to change the film or the title or different things. There were notes from William Morris and it was getting a little sticky, you know, and it wasn't really, it wasn't Cassian, but it was other, you know, other people that just had their fingers in the creativity that were starting to make decisions that, that were not working for me or for them um, because I wasn't doing them <laughs> or I wasn't doing them the way they wanted. You know, they want, they, for example, didn't want the hospital scene. If you can imagine, yeah. they said, it doesn't matter. It does none of that matters. And I said, okay. 
um, there were all there were all kinds of differences of opinion, and I just wasn't willing to go there. So, but anyway, they did get us into the Hamptons International Film Festival, and um, in order to do it, we had to prove we had the rights to show that material from the making of Star Wars and and the actual Star Wars footage. And um, so I thought, well, okay. Um, so I call Gary and Gary doesn't answer. Gary lives in London and I call him and I call him and he's usually, he picks up that day or at least the next day. Finally, I got a hold of, I think I got a hold of his daughter, Tiffany is where, how I finally found out that he was in Russia scouting locations for, for, or doing research for this really cool World War II project that he'd been developing. And he was out in the middle of Siberia somewhere, like in a snow cat, <clears throat> you know, <laughs> and, wow. and so couldn't be found. And because what I wanted him to do was call George and say, hey, would you take a look at the scenes that are pertinent here? And, you know, mm -hmm. couldn't, couldn't do it. So I, I thought, well, I hate to put John in this position, but since John Noel and I had started out together as model makers and had done a couple of films together and were best men at each other's weddings, I thought I could maybe ask for one tiny little favor. I said, so I called up and I said, John, could you show George the, <laughs> the sections of the film? today because <laughs> we need because if we missed this deadline to get the paperwork in we couldn't get into the festival so he goes oh, oh, all right i'll call you back <laughs> cut to like an hour later um i, I went into george's office and I, I brought my laptop and the dvd and i, I played him the uh, significant material and he uh he uh he looked up at me and he said i think the answer is yes and the next day we got a letter from Lucasfilm that just basically gave us rights throughout the universe till the end of time for all that material. It was just unbelievable. Just so generous and wonderful and rare. I mean, yeah. the only oh, yeah. thing that compares slightly, well, it compares, even George would admit this is pretty cool. We're the second film in history to have actual footage from 2001, A Space Odyssey in it, that isn't like a documentary film, you know, mm -hmm. a narrative comedy drama whatever i mean you know tim burton got some of that footage that he wanted for uh chart you know uh, willy wonka and then our one shot that we had to pay an enormous amount of money for of, of pushing into the monolith you know at the beginning of the film that was the kubrick family uh gary had called uh, jan harlan and uh, sent the movie over and jan liked it and showed it to the rest of the family and they all liked it and they said yes they said stanley would have said yes and there was there was a version of that theater scene that had about 20 shots from 2001 and it. it was almost like a trailer for the movie in two minutes and um when they sent us how much it would cost to have that many clips it was like well we could just make another movie so but they were warner's was great and uh, warner brothers was great and the cooper family have been big supporters ever since which is really nice how does it feel to be you know we talk about fan one you know you're an original era fan of so much of this stuff as the movie chronicles and it's it's pretty much all true right and no exaggerations here really right not i mean what i'll tell you what because it says yeah most of this is true the rest is even truer yeah the the exaggerations that are in there are more about protecting certain people like the villains the two villains are actually composites of a couple of people so that just i didn't want to go down that road every other person that's named in the movie it's their real name and it's what they did and what they you know it's basically what they didn't said it's also three years worth of events actually collapsed down into one yeah and bill was actually a senior and i was a freshman we weren't in the same class okay but that also just got gummy as a movie you know yeah. it just got too much but 
the crazier the event, and you know the ones I'm talking about, the, the closer I hewed to reality for a lot of reasons. One, truth is always stranger than fiction, and it plays better than fiction usually because people just have an innate sense. Even if something seems outlandish, they can sometimes go, you know what? That has to be true. No one would make that up, right? Yeah. The things that I had to make up were sort of connective tissue things that would knit one situation to another, or maybe it didn't take place in that exact location. But I mean, we, every location except for the high school, which uh, some students right behind me when I graduated burned to the ground the next year, uh, that high school that we shot at is Waukegan High School. It's the one right next to the town next door, which was designed by the same architect. And it's really a very similar looking building. So we use that. And it's actually a high school that Neil Flynn attended um, just a couple of years ahead of me. And Neil and I knew each other from working at Great America. So I've known Neil for decades and, and Bill... Bill Holmes, the real Bill, my best friend from high school, he is a Hollywood, you know, he's an actor. He's been in a bunch of my films, a lot of other things. He's a, he's a huge uh, voice over and, and voice talent uh, coach and agent and provocateur. And he's got, he's, he's done really well for himself in that regard. And he plays Todd, the theater manager. That's the real Bill from my childhood. And the nurse that comes out, congratulations, it's a fist. That's the real Robin who, you know, there's, and it's my, my daughter playing me in the theater at the beginning with her hair all chopped off, dyed blonde to look like a little boy. And cause it matched all the super eight movies and childhood photographs we used throughout the film. And it was like, wait, how did they, <laughs> you know? Yeah. So at any rate, we got that permission. We got, you know, we got all this, this goodwill from people based on being able to screen what we had of the film. And um, it's been fantastic. I mean, just uh, the, the kind of support we got from, I mean, the ASC, the American Society of, or, um, the American Society of Cinematographers, mm -hmm. uh, where we shot the ASC Clubhouse, right, in Hollywood, um, where he meets Herb Lightman, we were only supposed to shoot outside. No one in the history of the ASC, and you're talking about Every director and, and, and director of photography that ever mattered in the world is a member of that secret society. No one has ever been allowed to shoot inside that building, ever. It's like a policy, right? So what happened was, and we, we even shot in the, for the movie, there was a there's Japanese-American um, gardener who was working at the time when I really, when this all happened in 1977. Um, and he's a lovely guy. He's an older guy, but he, but he, he, he was kind of hanging around and watching a lot of the stuff that was happening with Herb and I, and he just kind of, I guess he remembered it because, you know, decades later when we were given permission to shoot outside, we're shooting all these plate shots and getting our stuff done. And all of a sudden this gardener who's still alive, he's got to be 123, comes around the corner and goes, what are you guys doing? And, 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 and while we're shooting, we got permission. He goes, yeah, I know, but why are you shooting out here? Why don't you come inside? It's cooler. And it looks better and it's really amazing. And I said, that's okay. And he goes, I got the key. <laughs> so he opens it up and in we go with our, you know, anamorphic lenses and our handheld camera and our guy in a spacesuit, and we we shoot. And, and that then, man was fired the next day. No, next he, in fact, he spent the rest of his days taking care of that place. He's beloved. And he, um, and, and, and <laughs> so then, you know, the ASC finds out and they call, they're like, what the hell are you 
okay, I can't do your rest. You're never. And I, and I said, can I just show you the scene? And so I sent them the cut together material, you know, and they were, they were happy. They liked it. And they said, okay. Which is like a theme for this conversation is like, the, you know, like, here's how it looks. And people are like, oh, it's like yeah. your love, your genuine passion and your love has opened so many doors. That's kind of one of I wanted to ask you because so I was asking you about, you know, what's true. Most of it's true. Your fandom is true. That's that's what I was really hammering right. home. That's true. Your passion and your absolute devotion to these films and these properties and these effects and the people that made them um, seems to have served you so well in your relationships and people just like you and they want to do what they can do to help. And I think it's pretty amazing. It's been really unbelievably amazing. You know, the ILM sequence, for example, the only reason we got that done, we had this giant building where we had already shot Future General and the cloud tanks and Douglas Trumbull and all that stuff. Now it was time. To, and, and, and so the, the art department had like, you know, a week of us doing other stuff to get that set built. And that meant building the building the Dykstra Flex and the and the you know the motion control tracks and the all the, the miniatures and you know Death Star surface and all that. So the the day before we're supposed to shoot that, I haven't been even in there to look because I've just been told you know you don't have time. Just keep shooting over here and we'll take care of this. Right? The day before we're supposed to shoot, I go over there and it's there's nothing. There's just a pile of lumber and some PVC pipe and the boxes full of props and models and stuff and the original matte paintings from Close Encounters in a box and, uh, you know, a, a, a one panel of a Death Star surface, right? That was built. Um, <laughs> so we, I said, I said to the, the art department people, I said, where's ILM? And they're like, well, we're just, we're just not sure how to, how to do it. Cause they'd never really done anything like it before. They were, they, they were used to de decorating apartments and, you know, it, it, so, there was this wonderful guy, Rick Inglesby, who was a model maker who built a who had built a three foot Star Destroyer that was so good that Lucasfilm would often rent it and ship it around the country to museums or stuff as part of the real collection of models from wow. the movie. Right. Subterfuge. Okay. Well, I mean, you know, I don't think they ever claimed it, but I think yeah. I don't think they said this is a replica. I think it just was there, you know, but the cool part was. So he had, he had driven out from Buffalo, New York with his model in a special case. And he'd been sitting there for a week watching all these people running around with their hair on fire, trying to make this goofy little movie. And, and I, it occurred to me, because he showed me a bunch of portfolio photos of all the miniatures he'd built. And, and he was a phenomenal you know, model maker and, and also a filmmaker in his own right. And I just looked at him one day, or, at, or as I came out of the ILM part of the warehouse, twitching and shaking and freaking out, he goes, how's it going over there? And I said, it isn't going. And I said, let me ask you a question. If I field promoted you to production designer of ILM and gave you this entire crew and 24 hours, could you get ILM built? And he goes, yeah. <laughs> so he did. <laughs> wow. And he, had, he, he was so thrilled to do it that he ended up writing a book about it called Building Dreams. It's, it's a paperback book and get it on Amazon. It's, and it's an amazing book filled with amazing photographs, behind the scenes stuff and stories like uh, uh, it's, and so it, it was like a life-changing experience for him. And it was a life-changing experience for me because I got what I needed and he got what he wanted. You know, he got yeah. to do something amazing that he could show the world, you know, and, and that's happened so often on this film. I mean, you know, David Russo, his score 
I mean, no movie this size should have a score that grand. It, it's impossible. Not for David Russo. <laughs> yeah. And not because we paid a bunch of money. We still owe David money. You know, um, he did it because he loved the movie and we're friends and he knew that he, that it would be a good film. And he, we had done two other films together, Angus and, and Space Invaders, and we worked really well together. And he, and he had a pretty hard challenge on this one because I was basically saying, take all your genius that you usually apply, but I'm going to limit you to these two, not limit you, but I'm gonna ask you to weave in these two melodies from two Alan Parsons songs right and they and you have to do it you have because it, it and it plays out for a reason and there's a reason you know and, and and he he's up to any challenge but this it's true though i mean we've just gotten such goodwill the austin pendleton almost got himself fired from directing a play at steppenwolf theater in chicago because originally the the, the part was written for bob balaban mm -hmm. bob wanted to do it very much but then he got gosford park and he was unavailable well meanwhile i'd gone off and done um uh, when good ghouls go bad in australia with christopher lloyd and and i said chris would you do it he goes oh yeah sure okay <laughs> so but we didn't have the money yet i just said when we get the money will you do it and he goes yeah 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 so then 9 11 happened and chris stopped flying for a while everybody stopped flying for a while but he he needed to travel between new york and, and la which just happened to mean he would take amtrak in a sleeper car from LA to Chicago. And then you have like a six hour turnaround to get on the Chicago to New York train. So it'd always be like, oh, I'm coming to town. You wanna to go get some oysters or something? I don't know, it's, it's, you know, and, and, and so- Oysters? Comes, what? Whatever, <laughs> <laughs> a beef sandwich. <laughs> but we, so I'd pick him up at the train station and we'd go have lunch or dinner or whatever. And, and finally it occurred to me, wait a minute, since you're stopping in town every now and then, and there are these big, beautiful movie palaces down in Chicago, said, would you mind just, because I was going to have him originally play, first it was Herb, and then I thought, well, for the trailer, Herb doesn't make sense, we don't want to give it away. Would you play the theater manager and go up into the projection booth and just kind of look out in wonder, and then I'll superimpose Star Destroyers reflected over your glasses and stuff, you know, and, and so I said, yeah, let's go. <laughs> so we went with theater, opened it up, and these theater kids the ushers or something the projection booth guys like that's christopher lloyd and like, yeah and so we sat there and shot for like an hour so a bunch of footage of him watching from various vantage points and i cut that into this this trailer that's what ultimately got us the money was the trailer had christopher lloyd had carrie fisher who was originally going to play my mom it had uh, and that she didn't even have time to shoot any footage and so i just took some footage from another movie and doctored it to look like it was in the kitchen at my house and uh, uh joe pantaliano played my dad <laughs> <Gilly Pan. laughs> and pardon me yeah and uh ariana richards uh chris owen played bill ariana richards played robin um uh, charlie talbert was in there um a bunch of just all these people just showed up and, and shot footage wherever they were living and sent me stuff and i just cobbled it all together into this trailer that was good enough to get the original budget you know um but you know it's funny i mean it was gary who anointed me anointed me who described he said when when i first pitched him the story he he said wait a minute when did this happen and i told him and he goes no one else who hadn't been given clearance or permission by George or me or whatever, even studio people, he goes, no one else had seen the film then. He goes, you're the first civilian to ever set eyes on that film. He goes, you're, you're fan one. And I was like, oh boy, I don't know if I want to 
you know, I don't, it's a great title, except for the fact there's a lot of jealous people out there that would love to yeah. just like torpedo you for it, even though it wasn't my fault. I didn't know. I didn't know I was going to see it, you know, but, but the thing is, is I don't claim it because that also a, a title like fan one, somebody asked one of the people that wanted to buy the movie at one point wanted me to change the title of the movie to fan one. And they said, nothing will make anyone else but Star Wars fans run away from this film faster than calling it fan one. <laughs> and I don't, you know, nobody owns fandom. I do, I do, I do throw out a challenge to, uh, to Stephen Colbert because he goes, he, he's been claiming for years that he was the first person to see it, but it was a test screening like a month later. So there, Stephen, I challenge you. <laughs> but I don't know, but I don't know as much about Star Wars as he does. I don't know as much about Star Wars as most people. I know a lot about things that people don't know about because they're just not talked about or they weren't there. Um, some of it's been a lot of it's been dissected to death but there's stuff I know that very few people know but that but I couldn't for the life of you tell you whether you take a left turn at Dagobah to get to Bespin or whether you go up or down or yeah. what quadrant you're you know I, I mean there are people who are walking encyclopedias about this stuff and I'm not one of them and the only I mean I have exactly three pieces of Star Wars memorabilia let's see I got whoop. And they're not even like original old things. Like I've got my little Jawa here <laughs> mm -hmm. and he's there to inspire a project I'm working on right now that I can't talk about, but, but I'll tell you later. Um, okay. <laughs> but, um, and, and I've, I mean, the only real piece of Star Wars memorabilia that I have that's of any real value is uh, Gary gave me one of the MPC Millennium Falcon kits that had been built up by ILM for previous on Empire. There's three of them in the world. Wow. Two of them are in the archive and the other one is in somewhere around here. <laughs> um, and it's just, a, you know, the, the model kit quickly slapped together and yeah. detail painted and little, you know, damaged stuff, weathered and stuff. But, you know, you'd never be able to, if you didn't know that Gary Kurtz had owned it and ILM had owned it and that he gave it to me for as a good luck charm when we started the movie, you would just think it's some... 11 year old kids kit bash that he threw together you know yeah but it's the okay. real deal i, I, I want to ask you so let's divert for just a second because correct me if i'm wrong but i feel like your uh, appreciation for star wars and what you connected with when you first saw it you know that that visit to seeing how things are done you were you were connecting with the creative aspect of it you were creating with the world building that was happening you're no you don't see you know there's a fandom now and maybe this is, you know, you're talking about the, the, the prologue for the movie where you get out, you know, this, the old fan versus the young fan. I feel like there's a focus now on like, well, a Jedi code says that the, it's like the rules of the universe. That was never what I responded to. I responded to the world and the imagination and the fantasy and the craft that went into it. And the fun. Yes. Ooh, because yes. listen, I'm a hard sci-fi fan. I love, I, you know, I'm a Philip K. Dick kind of guy. I love the, the real stuff. You know, I, I uh, Star Wars is not sci-fi. It's space opera. Yeah. And George, I remember Gary telling me how how mad George got <laughs> Gary and, and my old friend Irvin Kirshner because they went out and took something that had been a popcorn throwing, jump in your seat, have a lot of fun, laugh and scream and giggle at the silliness of the aliens. And, and it was all... Like Herb says, you you know, we know you can tell we made these sets out of cardboard, but look how much fun we're having, right? I mean, Star Wars was co cobbled together out of things you could lie, find lying around in the garage, yeah, right? Yeah. Blade Runner, no. 
close encounters. No, th those were engineered. They were designed and they were, they, they were, they're hard sci-fi, right? Star Wars is a roller coaster ride. It's an amusement park ride. And it always, it doesn't mean you can't do serious stuff in it. I mean, Andor is fantastic. Rogue One is my second favorite Star Wars film. Um, I, and, you know, it doesn't hurt that my, you know, best man, best friend came up with the idea, but it, it's, uh, but it's just so well done. And I love, what I love about Andor is you do not have to have Jedi and lightsabers and Yoda and the Skywalker family in every Star Wars piece of material. In fact, to the contrary, I was thinking the other day, you know, about guys like, you know, Billy Crystal or Steve Martin or something. I said, why doesn't, why don't, to me, what Lucasfilm should do is say Star Wars is now its own genre. It's like the Western, it's the futuristic Western, but, but instead of just being a genre, it's, it's a backlot, it's a universe, right? And anyone can play in it from fans to professional, you know, if Wong Kar Wai wants to make a Star Wars film, he's allowed under the following circumstances. You know, Lucasfilm doesn't have to fund it. They have to approve of it. He has to run it by them. If they like it, he makes it and they have final editor. I mean, they would have to have the right to say, um, no, you can't have that in there at the end, right? Yeah. But if you were to literally say, and by the way, if you make this movie and you go find money for it, we will give you, you know, you get all the, the digital files, you get, you, you can do your own effects or we'll do them for you for a price or whatever. You, you just make it into a studio, a Star Wars studio where anybody can make a Star Wars, a piece of Star Wars material, whether it gets seen by people or not comes down to whether you did a good job or not and whether Lucasfilm feels that it, you know, it, it is part of the larger universe. But I mean, there are so many amazing sci-fi stories that could be converted with a, the tiniest bit of engineering that have, you know, you can, or not even sci-fi stories. Imagine the sand pebbles, right? Imagine a, about a guy on a tramp steamer at the edge of the galaxy, right? just trying to get through his service before he gets out and go and can go home with the pretty girl or whatever, or the pretty boy or whatever, just open it up and let, let anybody work in it as long as they're willing to take the risk that it might not end up part of the canon. Right. Planet of the cave bear with banthas or, uh, or do backs. Well, I don't know. Well, I mean, you're, that's not wrong. And I was thinking when I was thinking about comedians, I thought, why couldn't you, you take any comedian that you love. Right. And he's a comedian. And he's going from planet to planet, from bar to bar, entertaining people and trying to make fun of a horrific scenario that's going on, you know, right now with the Empire and everything. You know, it could, it, it could be like that Mel Brooks film, that great Mel Brooks film about the, the theater company in World War II. I can't remember. But, uh, producers? No, producers is. Okay. No, it's, it's literally for my Mel Brooks, uh, in World, World War II. It's uh, um, to be or not to be, maybe? And it's basically this theater company messing with nazis um and and it's really fun and make and trying to escape you know before it's too late and um but, but but why not do a sam spade kind of film in space right why not do um john wayne and the cowboys in space yeah to be or not to be terrific yeah. film charles durning plays one of the nazis and it is hysterical um and the only person who could really make nazis fun was mel, is mel brooks <laughs> um <laughs> Well, Stephen makes them fun, but only fun because we get to get them to see them get punched and blown up and turned into, you know, cosmic ash. So that's cool. great. Yeah. Um, um, I can't wait to see that happen again in the next one. <laughs> hey, do you remember when before Disney bought Lucasfilm, before it was even uh, on the table, 
uh, George Lucas kept talking about how he was developing a series, going to be a live action series, and it was going to be about the, the Star Wars underground. And I think he even said, maybe we'll tell the story of a janitor. I it's been all this time. Andor is kind of getting that's kind of that thing. But Where it's, it's going. Yeah. Like 15 yeah. years ago, we were talking about this and it's only just now starting to happen. Well, it's funny you should mention that because 15 years ago when I needed finishing funds to shoot the rest of my movie and people were saying, you know, Star Wars is kind of over. You know, because that yeah. you know the prequels had come out, and there was there was nobody knew what was next. I knew they were working on a series. Yeah. I knew that it was coming, and I knew Star Wars wasn't over. But I couldn't breathe a word about it because that would be excommunication. You know, that would that would be like a death sentence, and and I didn't want to get anybody in trouble, right? And it wasn't John Knoll who told me about it, so there he's protected. Um, but it, you know, even to save my film, I couldn't because I didn't want to do anything to damage my relationship with Lucasfilm and the people up there who've been so cool and so nice and so supportive, you know, all this time. Yeah. So, um, and they gave me this Don't hat. go against family. Oh, never. <laughs> um, well, go ahead, go ahead. Well, I was just, I, I you know, I, I, I still think, you know, there's all this fighting over whether Last Jedi is the good one or Rise of Skywalker or, force returns or whatever i uh force awakens um and i keep thinking to myself when, whenever somebody tears down one of these efforts i say okay i'll tell you what let's imagine that the first movie is rogue one okay or let's imagine that the first movie is empire right and we go through all the other films and then we and we don't do anything to change any of them and then we show you Star Wars as the penultimate, you know, it's the final chapter, right? Or before the, let's forget about the sequels for a minute, okay. or maybe forever. Um, but no, <laughs> I do, I actually like a lot of what's in the sequels. But okay. imagine the audiences that are, that are skewering, you know, Ryan Johnson for uh, Last Jedi seeing Star Wars unchanged uncut the storytelling that's in it the aliens that are in it the choices that are made in it and going oh well now we're talking what do you really not not knowing star wars and then seeing it watching that cantina scene for example yeah cantina scene's wonderful mm -hmm. but it's also hokey as hell and even back in the day i have to tell you you know when star wars came out i saw it 28 times in its first 30 days of release in the theater okay I saw Close Encounters 34 times in its first 30 days of release. <laughs> but, but, and so I was all over it, obviously. But even then, and George didn't, I mean, the effects weren't, some of them were, I wouldn't call them groundbreaking. They were doing new and interesting stuff with motion control and everything. But there was never an ability, let alone much of an attempt to make them realistic. Mm -hmm. That wasn't the point. I mean, we got to remember, I mean, George and, 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 and Gary, their whole mission originally was just to make their, their version of Flash Gordon. And by Flash Gordon, I mean Flash Gordon with smoke and sparks. I mean, they didn't really Buster much crab Flash Gordon. Yeah, that's right. It wasn't about whether it should, which is why, by the way, the Flash Gordon that, you know, Dino and, and, and Raffaella made is so popular and works is because nobody gives a shit whether it looks like real spaceships. In fact, the less they look like real spaceships and hokey, yeah. And the bad blue screen and everything, the more fun it was. Mm -hmm. I mean, it was a laugh riot, those effects. 
right? But and 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 it didn't it didn't take itself so seriously. So when George, I mean, when Gary and uh, and and Irvin made this really epic, beautifully told story with terrific performances and very little silliness comparatively, yeah, George was mad. He was mad. He said, you 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 ruined it. The the problem now is now they're all going to have to be this good. A, which is really hard to do, better writing, better, you know, everything, right? But also the audience's expectation now has been brought to a level where they're not just laughing and cheering and jumping and just having fun. Now they're getting critical. Now they're going, now, wait a minute. If that happened, this should happen. Now they're starting to take it seriously and they're turning it into science fiction, which all things evolve and and i think we're the better off for some of that but if we lose the ability to just go i love how stupid that is yeah because it's not our universe or our galaxy is a galaxy far far away if you believe in quantum mechanics then all things are possible all things literally there's a theory you know the multiverse theory but if if you believe if you, if you believe in any of that multiple universe quantum collapsing of wave scenario idea what that means is every story that's on those books or tapes or whatever are behind you there everything you've ever read everything you've ever watched actually at some point in some level of the quantum realm did happen including a million monkeys on typewriters writing shakespeare somewhere in the universe then if you believe in an infinite universe it has to have happened which is really freaky yeah you can spend a lot of time on a college dorm roof staring at this guy smoking pot thinking about that. <laughs> this is good stuff though. This is the stuff that, that fans like to talk about. Like, yeah. what if, man, what if, what if? Yeah, I love it. I, I don't want to take a let's I'm I know we've gone, we've been talking for like an hour now. I feel like there's still so much to talk about. So let me ask you about the special effects. You said something really interesting in your commentary. You're talking about how uh there are visual effects in this movie that are not obvious like magazines in people's hands. And then the visual effects that should be obvious are maybe made more obvious. You've, you've, you talk about, well, I'll, I'll let you take over, but the lower quality special effects to tell a certain part of the story where the other, there are other effects that are totally unsung. So you, talk, talk to me about that. So the, the intention all along um, was to mix it up the, the movie in a fairly frenetic way Um to to echo what was going on in this particular kid's head at the age of 15 17 in the you know the, the manic kind of adhd um or add at the time because it certainly wasn't an adult um but the idea was that this is not exactly what happened it's what i remember happening and i remember it in different levels of quality different levels of excitement different levels of reality as in Sometimes things are too painful to remember the way they really looked. And other times they're too ridiculous to treat them seriously. Like the Pinto, you know, taking off. Yeah. I could have done that, you know, just as well as anybody in town. We could have done really great motion control and we could have done amazing opticals, you know, digitals. And we could have, we could have really made that sing, right? In fact, we we did some 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 CG versions of it early on that were more like kind of like really complex animatics and stuff. Um, And they just fell flat because the audience didn't feel connected to them in any way. And they didn't feel like something that he could have done if he didn't have a Macintosh and Photoshop and Premiere 
And so that as good as they were, they were also just flat. They didn't, they didn't have depth and reality and grunge and strings. And, and so I, we spent an extra, uh, quite a bit of money. Weirdly enough, the cheesiest of the effects are the ones that are these kind of fantastical, whimsical imaginings of what something would look like if he had no time limits and no budget limits but that didn't mean they would be particularly particularly good because he had no experience yet at being good at this right mm -hmm. and and nobody had done much better effects than those in space movies by then anyway except for of course 2001 yeah right so the idea was look here's the mission uh, obviously we, we change aspect ratios we go super eight we go 16 millimeter you know uh, it's 16 millimeter spherical 185 and then you know 235 anamorphic you know super 35 millimeter film stock and then sometimes it's shot on digital video and you can tell because the other part of this is that it it's not a movie that's necessarily taking place then it's taking place in the theater and it's a memory and it's been cobbled together out of bits and pieces of my life and my memory and my abilities and what, what I had at the time and what I didn't. And hiding that was not nearly as important as allowing it because it, it, it gives you an immediacy that it wouldn't otherwise have. The whole thing about him kind of cutting together the movie of this experience and editing out some, one critic pointed out and they got it, they really got it. Every time things get too difficult or too emotional, he stops the story and takes it out it's like his dad said editing is about if you, there's something in your story you don't like just take it out i mean it's it's not a complex metaphor or anything um it it's but it but it means something and it and it gave us a device for starting and stopping the film and going through time and and like treating that moviola like an elevator through time right that you can you choose the floor get off explore get back on and you know, for me, you know, creating, you know, there was a certain level of effects that had to be what I called close encounters level. They were as good as you could get in 1977. That was it. You couldn't do any better than that. I mean, Doug Trumbull and Richard Urich and those guys and Steven and Joe Alves and their combination and, and Joe, you know, um, uh, uh, God, I can't believe I'm blanking on the names here. Anyway, all of the people involved in close encounters, Greg Jean, um, you know, they, they were at the top of the game, right? And that's why it was so intimidating to finally meet Doug and be in that space because this was rocket science. This wasn't what you could find in your garage. Yeah. And, and so what I wanted was, uh, you know, matte paintings. In fact, something like 10 or 12 of the matte paintings that are in the movie were done by Rocco Joffrey, the junior 18-year-old matte painter on Close Encounters, who I met during the tour, you don't see me in the, in the movie meeting him, but I met him back and then, and we've been friends ever since. And, um, and so he came back and did close encounter style matte paintings for a bunch of moments in the movie. And, and they were meant to look like matte paintings. They're not meant to fool you. They're meant to say, oh, wow, I get that's a matte painting, but like, it's not like there's lots of, there's no 3D movement on them. There's no special stuff that they we've been able to do years later. There's no 3D matte paintings. It's all locked off still except for the moving elements and and it's meant to feel like something that would have existed had douglas trumbull had time to do the effects for my life in 1977 so there those and then there were the invisible effects that john knoll did so when we're walking through ilm the only thing of the death star that exists is the one panel that john dykstra rips up and throws the rest of that's all john you know 
Uh, and the same with the Millennium Falcon. We didn't have a big enough miniature of the Millennium Falcon, so he just dropped it into the storage box that it's sitting in for us. And, um, and, and the cloud tank as well. The cloud tank sequence, that's all John. You know, we, we had, we had a, a frame and one half of the Waldo, the, you know, the pneumatic or the hydraulic motion arm, and the rest, the clouds, the water, the reflection, the glass, all hand tracked in, rotoscoped and tracked, and you know, I mean, he did an amazing job. <clears throat> you know, all and he did it himself, like at home on his Mac. <laughs> um, and so, so, so there were the the. I want you to know that there are effects, but I want you to like them enough that you feel like you're in 1977 watching Close Encounters. Mm -hmm. Then there's I don't want you to see a thing, and there's thousands of those in the movie. Split screens, pupils on eyeballs that are moved to a better eye line. Um, added characters, added buildings, added cars going through frame, uh, what a light lightning in the distance, you know, that tower that seems to follow him around town, the, you know, the, the theme park tower that's, it's somehow it's in every location, you can see it from the backyard of anybody's house, you know, because it's, it's his fate if he doesn't get out of there. It's like a dinosaur creeping after him through the town. And, but and then there were the willfully cheesy effects, which were, you know, the Pinto taking off and him driving to his girlfriend's house in a little dinky toy or, you know, yeah. cast iron or a, a die cast metal Pinto that's been painted to look I like. I love that stuff. That yeah. stuff is so fun. And it's on a it's literally on a treadmill like you would exercise on that's been painted to look like asphalt, you know, and <laughs> I mean, it's like the Flintstones, you know, and but that was the stuff that I, I thought, again, if I don't if I try to make this like, oh, wasn't Pat incredibly talented? He should have been working at ILM. No, I wanted him to be limited even in his own dreams by the limitation of not yet having had the experience of doing something as good as what places like ILM could do. Mm -hmm. So, and, and, and some people get it and some people hate it. I mean, some people are like, it's really? just messy and terrible and they should have had better effects. And, they, and I'm like, okay, you missed the point. Yeah, but you got to get that a lot, right? And you yeah. mean- you even said something in the commentary that I, I don't know if you want to elaborate on or not, but you, you're talking about teaching and that some people are willing to learn and some people aren't willing to listen. Well, they um, don't want to learn. They, some people don't want you to know that they have anything to learn. Others think that teachers or people that are teaching are just trying to make you be like them or just make, you know, and, and, and sometimes just having a, a contrary opinion is, is I guess meant to be cool. Um, you know, there's nothing wrong with actually liking something. Yeah. There's nothing wrong with it. We'd, we'd probably be all a little bit better off if we just kind of relaxed a little bit and said, I liked it and, and we're willing to admit it, you know? Yeah. I love Last Jedi. I'm more than willing to admit it. There are things in it I don't like at all. You know, I don't like Carrie Poppins, but, you know, when that happens, that, I, but I get it. And I, and, and had, had it been me, and it of course wasn't, and probably never would be, but, I might have done that moment and had it had to keep it in. I just might have, you know, done a little bit different choreography. Yeah. But I, I get the possibility of why you could even as a storytelling device have it work. And I love the holdo maneuver. The whole thing about the holdo maneuver is that people are like, well, why don't they just do that all the time? Why, why have they always done that? And it's like, there's a first time for everything. She wasn't setting out, neither were any of them to get themselves killed. They wanted to live, right? At a certain point, when things are looking bad, now what you can argue about whether it was smart to to do that whole section the way it's done anyway, but once you're in it and you're and look, there are a lot of things that you can point at Star Wars and Empire and Jedi and say, really, 
Really? What do you need walking machines for to get across a snowfield? What the hell? It takes you a half an hour to get someplace you could just airdrop in from. What are you doing? I mean, how did those things get there? Why not just drop the men? I mean, just there's you can punch holes in anything in Star Wars. But uh, to me, you know, like the hold on maneuver, I thought it's beautiful and it's a sacrifice and it's a moment. And you know what? It's, it was one of the most spectacular shots in Star Wars history, I thought. Um, so again, people will all get slayed for this, you know, by some people. Um, and I actually loved Luke's arc, loved it. And I, in fact, I loved it so much. It made me start thinking about what's going to happen in the Mandalorian with a little green guy that everybody wants and they want him so badly. Why, why do they want him so badly? I think he's concentrated evil. I, he loved batting that stormtrooper around a lot, right? I think Jason Sudeikis' uh, speeder bike trooper is going to end up being a superhero by the end of this series. Because what? The last time we see Luke before his Jedi temple falls apart uh, due to some kind of bad juju is he's got Grogu with him. Yeah. Interesting. Send emails too. <laughs> can you imagine? I mean, can you imagine the? I mean, you talk about a no Luke, I am your father moment. Yeah. You know, if Grogu is what they need to, you know, keep the Emperor alive or whatever <laughs> for a transfusion, not because he's evil by intent, but because he doesn't know that that's really his purpose is to just like transport the worst of the Force to where it's needed. That's interesting. I haven't thought about that. That you're the first person to ever heard talk about that. So it would. I I just love the idea of of, of somebody of somehow just cutting back to Jason Sudeikis's character going. I told you, <laughs> I should have hit him it. harder. Yeah, they could do it. Well, so now the movie is out. It is on Blu-ray, and uh, this is a feature-loaded package too. There's a lot of uh, excellent commentary. Uh, there's Thank a you. Q and A from 2013, which I, I mean that's nine years ago, but it's yeah. super relevant. Um. Uh, lots and lots of stuff here, but it doesn't sound like you're done. It sounds like you're still working with. Well, this not because I, 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 I'll put it this way. I, I, there is a possibility at some point in the not too distant future of another version of the film, um, which would be sort of a choose your own editions thing where because there's about six hours of material. that's not in the film. I mean, we shot in most independent movies only get enough movie or, uh, footage to like cut together, you know, a 90 minute movie if they're lucky. We just because we had so much time and, and were able to really marinate and try things. There are whole sequences, whole side stories that can be dealt with. They don't necessarily have to be. But so rather than just putting them on as extras, I'm, I think on the special edition, what we'll do is is do like the supercut. Right. Mm -hmm. We'll have the regular cut, the super cut, and then, you know, you can just go through and look at the scenes. You can sort of choose and say, yeah, I don't want to follow her story as much as I want to follow his or whatever, which I think would be a really fun way to do it, where you could actually pick a, a way through the story and, you know, an emphasis. Because there's, yeah. for example, you know, um, uh, Doug, the, the football player dude, there's a whole finish to his story that's epic. It's really good. And there's a whole thing about him having to find a condom in a little small town in the 1970s when he's underage that go, it's a it's an adventure across the whole county in the pinto and stopping at bowling alleys and getting in fights and fight you know just to get a condom and it it's very funny and and, and another scene that well it'll it'll sell a lot of discs where, where he has to run down the street naked <laughs> 
wow. which uh, yeah uh, after he gets caught uh, in the living room with uh, linda by the dad it's really funny you film that so that's 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 in the can wow oh yeah well, i'm not filming anything else i'll tell you that but yeah, i okay. but um and, and and there were there there have been a couple of producers and studios that have suggested that that they would be willing to do either two back-to-back sequels probably direct to you know to, yeah. to streaming um or a limited series because what happens to my character after the end of this movie is infinitely more interesting and funny and crazy and insane that than what happens even in this movie and so it would be uh, 52590 the empire strikes pat which is about my 19 years in hollywood yeah with john francis daly playing at his age now wow using all of the footage not only from this film but the six hours we haven't used as flashback material so you've got 20 year old actual footage of your main actor who's now in his 30s as a guy working in hollywood in with studio deals and rising and falling and having you know all these relationships with all these famous you know film people who then leaves in disgust like you know going to find han (laughs) at the end and it's all it's like a downer ending and then you do 52504 return of the alumni which is uh, where all my old high school friends and all my friends from hollywood that i still kept in touch with all got together and made this movie what can we do to help make this happen? Just buy this disc. Buy that disc. Buy, buy the it, disc. And, and stream it and rent it and, and, and comment if you can. I mean, there's nothing. The beauty of, of what's going on right now with our reviews on Amazon and on, on Rotten Tomatoes is that there's not many of them. And so, and they're all good, except like one guy who didn't even re- leave a review, left like a one star. And of course that skewed the percentage like 10 points down because, oh. you know, whereas, you know, Steven and the Fablemans, they've got thousands of reviews. So if somebody doesn't like it, it doesn't really, it's like, yeah, you know, um, and I, you know, good for Steven. Yeah. I'm glad I, I want, I want to make sure he makes some money. So <laughs> no, I'm really excited. Yeah. He's okay. got a family to feed. So I know. It, yeah. You know, it's pretty sweet that he spent all that time and money making a prequel to my film though. I really, I just think that's sweet. <laughs> That's interesting. I don't know if you remember. Um, uh, I've I've used this as a line a couple of times. Um, when 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 Jurassic Park was about to come out, Roger Corman was a guest on the Tonight Show with Johnny Carson, and and he he had made a film called Carnosaur, which was a direct rip. I mean, you know, and, like and he puppy, did it, it, and he yeah, and he did it yeah. specifically to capitalize on the Jurassic Park thing because that's how Roger worked. But everybody loves Roger. Stephen loves Roger. George, every, you know, everybody used to work yeah. for him or if they didn't, they enjoyed him, right? He's a lovely guy. But when it, <laughs> Carson says to him, you can find this clip actually, I think on YouTube. He says, now, don't you, uh, don't, aren't you a little worried that Stephen's going to be a little upset with you about uh, ripping off his movie? And, 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 and Roger goes, well, let me put it this way. If you see just one dinosaur movie this year, it should probably be Jurassic Park. But if you see two, <laughs> and he busted up. Everyone loved it. And yeah. his movie came out and made him a bunch of money, even though it was a horrible movie. Um, so I said the same thing about Fablemans. It's like, if you see one disaffected, you know, put upon filmmaker all alone in his little town, who's helped out by his friends and his mom and his dad, you know, this year, it should probably be the Fablemans, <laughs> but if you see two, <laughs> yeah, now hey, you can... this, is, this is the one that fans may connect with even more because uh, you are one of us. You're a fan made good. You're a fan who, <laughs> you know, you 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 
you you've gone you've come a long way that's one of the things that you know i'm, I'm fascinated by it's just a, such an honor to talk to you because we are i think we love a lot of the same things but you got to make it and i think that that's amazing well and and i did tell this a lot to my students so thank you for that um um when i was teaching um there were a lot of them that were like you know when i'm done here i'm gonna go to la for you know six months or so and see if i get a directing gig or whatever and i'm like what yeah what and they're like, yeah, you know, I just want to check it out. And see. I said, if you, if you think that a career in film is something you just want to check out and yeah. see if, it, if it's all going to work out, why would you spend four years of your life at this age? This is like, you know, a fifth of your life to, to just see if you like it. If you don't need it, yeah. there are a lot of other ways to make money and have fun than make movies. Because um, it's going it, it, to, I'm not trying to be bitter old dude, but it, it, it'll grind you down even the best people, you know, the, you know, Francis Coppola talks all the time about what a emotional toil it is to make a movie and how, and, and the imposter syndrome he feels. And I know other big directors who feel like I really don't know what the hell I'm doing, but I'm trying, you know, I, I Ray Bradbury, who is a friend, um, used to say to people who are a little bit scared of going forward, jump, build your wings on the way down. That's beautiful. Yeah. And that's, that's my phrase. That's my phrase. Uh, that's the one I've carried on. Well, a lot of people have carried it on, but I, I, I took it very personally. We grew up in the same, well, he grew up in Waukegan. I grew up in Wadsworth, but, um, but you well, can't, true. It, you, yeah. 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 You have to, you have to need it. You have to be willing to take as long. I said to my students one time, I said, the only people I know who didn't get into the film industry are the ones who stopped trying. Never, never, never quit. If you're if you're willing to do that, it doesn't mean you you know you live in sanity and you don't take care of yourself and experience right. and do other work and do and maybe. But there are plenty of actors and directors and writers who didn't do their first real work until they were in their fifties, you know, or sixties or seventies. Right? It it's a need more than it's a hobby. It can be a hobby. There's nothing wrong. I love fan films. Yeah. You know, but most fan films are usually done by people who really do want to do it and they're just trying to show you with the thing they like the most which is whether it's star wars or star trek or whatever it is and i i actually am a big believer in though i you know we all hate piracy we all hate BitTorrent and all that you know I, I don't want my film pirated but i've seen the results of what happens when more people talk about your film than less people and if some of them aren't honest enough to, most of the time, the people I know or the things that I've observed with piracy is that, that people want to check it out, they'll do it illegally, and then they'll say, yeah, but I want to see the extras, or yeah, but, and maybe they'll pirate that, but they keep talking about it. And the more they talk about it, there are some people that'll just read these bulletin boards and go, wow, all these people pirated the movie, but they really loved it. And I'm not going to pirate this film because I know this guy does have to pay his bills and has to pay for his kids' schools and, you know, and, and, and life, you know. And, I, you know, maybe we'll get back to something like the old patronage days where, where artists will start to be valued enough that people will just give them money. <laughs> I mean, that is happening. There's crowdsourcing, yeah. uh, you know. And I, there's this company, Filmio, that brought in quite a bit of money for our film uh, that's a, a crowdfunding development uh, company. And it's just about to go live, I think. It's kind of like a Legion M thing, only I think cooler. Um, and it's going live, I think, in the next month or so. Uh, it's really, really interesting. They And they put, you know, Filmio put $600,000 into this film, our film. Um, 
so they're real i mean it's not like some little goofy startup that doesn't know what they're doing i mean it's the real deal but they're like it's it's crypto based but they're minting their own coins they're not using they're not it and it's pretty interesting you know i'm not i'm not a big crypto guy at all um however i actually am a fan of the idea i'm just not a fan of there's there's so many snap you know, smash and grab kind of or pump and dump, I guess they call it, you know, a bunch of companies that just jumped in. These guys have been developing this for five years now, like with the SEC and the whole thing. I mean, they're really doing their homework and making it, you know, transparent and interesting. It's going to be interesting to see what they do with it. A lot of other companies are kind of jumping aboard their bandwagon to actually be part of it because they've got a more sophisticated system and a better, I think a better product than a lot of the others. But anyway, I'm not, um, I, I, uh, I would encourage anybody, you know, I mean, nobody can tell what do it this way. If somebody tells you, you can't do it, that's it. That's your challenge, right? Someone says you can't don't, don't agree. Yeah. Cause if you wrong. agree internally, if you agree in your head and heart that you can't do it, you won't. So just yeah. don't, don't, don't agree with that assessment. That's a great place to, to leave it. Where should, let's do a call to action. So we want people to support the, the disc. I'm going to put links in the description. Well, the disc, the digital, the, the what is it? Digital video on demand. Yeah, there's, it's, it's, let's see, it's on, it's on iTunes. It's on Vudu. It's on, I think it's on Vimeo. It's on um, Amazon Prime Video uh, with DVD or Blu-ray as well. And then, uh, and then I, it starts streaming December, gosh, December 15th. It starts uh, streaming on Showtime. Wow. So that's awesome. Okay. And, um, and so anywhere you can, uh, and it reviews help a lot. If you see it and you like it, say something. If you see it and you don't like it, forget we ever existed. <laughs> yeah, neuralizer. <laughs> <laughs> As of this recording, there's uh, still bundles at MVD, I believe, where you can get this lovely 525.77 shirt, which I don't even, the microphone's hidden it. I know, <laughs> but it's great. The fun thing about that shirt is they, and what we did was, it's not the logo that's on, you know, the, the kind of Star Wars. But what it is, is it's meant to look like those old vinyl letters that would be ironed on at the t-shirt store at the mall. And that is actually based on a photograph of the actual shirt that John wore in the movie so that it's like, it's not like, like the letters. It's the exact spacing, yeah. shape, kerning, everything. So, And for me, this is the original Star Wars day. You can have your May the 4th. This is, this is when I celebrate Star Wars day. Absolutely. I don't. When, whenever May the 4th comes around, I try desperately to either be in a theater watching something else or or doing some yard work where I can't hear anything because everybody, you know, just ah, you know, I don't I don't check Facebook that day or yeah. Twitter. It's just like, stop. <laughs> it's so funny, right? Because we've got I've got a teenager and like that, like May the 4th is Star Wars Day because it's a meme because it's easily hashtagable. But there's a history connected with Star Wars Day and. To, I just now it's this old man yells at clouds now but you, you know what i'm saying i so. know exactly what you're saying yeah which is another uh, reason yeah I, yeah I don't really get into arguing about star wars at all there's no you can't win you just, you just let it go just yeah it exactly go. right be at peace <laughs> uh you want to reference any social media sites any you know twitter or uh, i would we, there's uh, there is a uh uh a facebook page and there is um and it's uh gosh i just think it's i'll link to it i'll link to 52577 facebook <laughs> you know and then i think the same <laughs> with twitter uh there's a there is a instagram 
and I don't know if she's got the TikTok up and going right now, but there you you can check. I'm, I haven't been all over it recently. I've been actually working on two other projects recently that I can't mm, quite can't tell about it. Huh? Not yet, but <laughs> soon. And I'd be I'm happy to come back. Um, it was fun, a lot of fun. Okay, yeah, this was great. Thank you so much. I'm gonna say goodbye to you after we finish recording. Sure. But uh, guys, please support this support this film. Uh, this uh, the the passion you've spoken about this thing for the last 90 minutes or so has just been fascinating. Uh, continue the conversation in the comments below and let's celebrate this stuff. Let's uh, let's make sure that this is a huge hit on the you know what of the algorithms and all the things. Uh, <laughs> Please. Uh, so thank you so much. Thank you so much for talking to me and being here. This was a real joy. I, I had a great time. Thank you very much. And I we'll we'll talk soon, no doubt. All right. Isn't that an amazing conversation? I, so it, as you heard in the interview, it's so important for us to support this, this film, support this, uh, this disc really, how, well, you know, however you want to do it. If you want to pay for it digitally, if you want to do a digital, you know, video on demand, uh, however you can watch it, but it is so important. We talk about this all the time, right? I feel like I talk about this just about every single week. It is so important to support the things that you love not just financially, but with comments and reviews and kind reviews, right? We're trying to elevate the things that we love. We're trying to get these things in front of other people. There is so much snark in the world. There is so much irony, kindness, genuine affection. These things go a really long way to uh, connecting others with the things that they'll enjoy. So. That's our job, right? That's our job is to that that's why this channel, this podcast, that's why Serial at Midnight exists in the first place is to connect people with uh passion and just to to I, I created this so I could talk about the stuff that I love and share conversations with people that I admire. So um that's what we can do and that reflects on this podcast as well. So our podcast if you're watching this on YouTube there as well. Uh if you can leave comments, if you can leave a review, if you can do a thumbs up, please subscribe only by engaging. I feel like, and I'm slipping into like a Jedi, only by engaging connections made you will. That's how you can support the things that you care about is with uh, kindness and by positive engagement. So uh, I would appreciate it if you would do all that you can do to spread the word about this podcast. We continue to grow and uh, try to get seen really. I don't want to have like a smoke screen and I just, I want to be honest, like it's hard for these things to get seen. So some podcasts just immediately blast off and they've got, you know, millions of followers within you know, like a month or something like that. That is not the case with this podcast. This is slow growth. Um, so whatever you can do to support it, you know, tell all your friends about it and uh, post it wherever you're active message boards. Hey, maybe in the office break room, you put up a little, <laughs> I don't know, maybe you just blast. You have a boom box that's connected to an MP3 and you blast the Serial at Midnight podcast, like say anything style instead of in your eyes. It's an interview from Patrick Reed Johnson. Uh, what, but seriously, like whatever you can do is so appreciated. Um, this has been... It was so such an honor to talk to Patrick Reed Johnson and just the the, the continued uh, conversations that we're having with so many people. I'm so proud of what I'm doing here and uh, I would love to hear back from you. You can email serialmidnight at gmail.com. That's right. There's no at. It's not serial at midnight at gmail. Somebody else has that and I think they get a lot of my 
I'm going to get a lot of my email. It's serialmidnight at gmail.com. There are links in the description of this video or podcast, however you're checking this out. Links for everything you can go and you can do and you can you know, click through to support this uh, the, the 52577 uh, film. You can support Serial at Midnight that way. We got a Patreon. You want a Patreon? We got a Patreon for you. You got all sorts of... You want a, You want 140 exclusive videos? You got it. It's on Patreon. You want collection tools? You got it. It's on Patreon. I don't know what character that was that I slipped into, but... Uh, it was kind of fun. Uh, so anyway, I'm gonna I'm gonna wind this one down. But thank you so much for being here. We go on to exciting things each and every week, and I'm so grateful that you're here to enjoy these things with me. So thank you, thank you for being here, thank you for sticking with me, guys. Until next time, please take care. And until wait, no, I got it backwards. Hold on. Until next time, take care. And I no, that's still not right. It doesn't feel right. Okay. Guys, thank you so much. Take care until next time. I will catch you later. I did it! Yo, Adrian! I did it! <laughs> <laughs>